Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. It is the 25th of September 2019 as I am recording this intro. I am one of your hosts, Byron Pace. Uh, my brother, Daryl, would normally be here in the intro as well, uh, but he is in Tanzania right now, somewhere deep, deep in the bush uh, with Robin Hurt Safaris creating some content for them. I believe he's on a buffalo hunt today. Um, Somehow, he's managed to find Wi-Fi way out there in the tented camp and has put up a few stories and pictures on our Instagram story. So if you want to keep track of him for the next two weeks, that's the place to go, Pace underscore brothers. Uh, I've got a small apology because two weeks ago, we said that we would bring you a podcast from our home country, the UK, maybe even from Scotland, where we actually live, uh, because we've had a lot of international uh, guests over the last two months mainly because we've been traveling a lot. Um, And I've completely failed to do that uh, because the couple of people that I thought I might be able to get on have been busy or we haven't been able to tie it up when I've been free. So I do have um, two great guests I'm going to interview next month. In Corin Smith, we're going to talk about the state of uh, salmon and fisheries and fishing in the UK as well as aquaculture. And Merlin Becker from the Game Wildlife Conservation Trust, who doesn't know he's coming on yet, but I have emailed him to ask him. I've met him a few times before. Uh, he's got brilliant on-the-ground science-based knowledge, and he's a very, very enthusiastic individual as well. Uh, so I'm not quite sure what we'll get into with him, but I know that when I saw him last time, we were doing transect surveys for birds and also mountain hare counts. So I'm sure both of those will come up. For this podcast, um, it's going to be an interview that I did with um, Mariska Beisterbosch. I may have butchered her last name because I just spoke to her as Mariska the whole time I was with her and I had to check how to pronounce her surname um, today. We recorded this in the DRC, Uh, so maybe five weeks ago now. Uh, So this was in the middle of the big trip that I just did to Africa where I've been for the last three months. Uh, and the elephant relocation that I was documenting. Um, so this is a podcast off the back of that, sort of right at the end of the, the relocation that we had done in the Congo. We talk a, a lot about that process and what it's like to relocate these colossal animals, uh, as well as all the other uh, game that was taken up there, and also about her background, because um, she's from Holland, but she works in Namibia. So we find out how she ended up going to Africa, sort of following her dream. Uh, It was a great conversation. Uh, I only wish that it could have been longer um, because we kind of got interrupted at the end. Uh, But anyway, I'm sure that you're going to enjoy it nonetheless. Uh, It was nice to to recount it as I edited it, actually. As with every week, this podcast is brought to you in partnership with Modern Huntsman. For those of you who don't know, Modern Huntsman was at the time and still very much is a groundbreaking publication in the hunting space where the barriers between hunters and non-hunters are removed and discussions are had in a very um, sort of pragmatic, open-minded manner. It is a publication that anybody could pick up, whether you're a hunter or a non-hunter, and feel comfortable uh, reading it. We have supported them since the very beginning. They are now very kindly supporting us on the podcast. We uh, are on busy editing volume four, which is an all-female issue. Uh, volume two and three can still be purchased online. Uh, so just go to the Modern Huntsman website 
Uh, volume two was on public lands. Volume three was on wildlife management. And I'm very, very excited to be heading to the estates in like a week's time now, I think, um, to be part of the last week of the editing process as the final stories get put together for volume four. And then we'll be able to start sharing some content from there. And certainly uh, well before the end of the year, you're going to be able to get your hands on volume four. If you want to know more about it, uh, go and listen to the two podcasts that we've done um, with Tyler Sharp, who is the editor-in-chief of the publication. Uh, you should be able to find those without too much trouble. Or go onto the Modern Huntsman website. There's a whole heap of information on there. We run a competition, as our regular listeners will know, uh, with every show. And two weeks ago, we asked you the question, if you were to give money to a conservation-based organization that really makes a difference on the ground, who would it be? And the reason we were asking uh, was because our good friends at um, Spartan Precision are wanting to give 2% of their profits to conservation, but they don't know who really deserves that money. Uh, which is it's an amazing initiative. So Spartan Precision uh, make um, bipods and tripods and shooting sticks. They are at the very, very forefront of engineering and um, sort of precision equipment you know, when it comes to revolution, revolutionizing the bipod. Uh, most people have been using you know, bipods and the same shooting sticks for the last 20, 30 years. And when they came along, it really did change things. It works on like a magnetic system that fits to an adapter that is part of your rifle. You can see all of that on their website, on the, the Spartan Precision website. Uh, and Rob Gearing, who uh, I've known for quite a few years, and in fact, his daughter, um, Jenna Gearing, um, who is a hunter, but also an amazing bronze sculptor, uh, she's been on the podcast before, and we had a lot of amazing feedback from that podcast. And she also very gener- generously um, gave us one of her bronze sculptures. Uh, it was a rowhead bronze as part of the Pangolin auction to raise money for um, the African Pangolin Working Group. So beautiful tie-in there. And he wanted to know, where should he where should he give this 2%? So we threw it out to our podcast listeners two weeks ago, and we're going to carry that on for this show. Uh, we have had some brilliant suggestions, but I'd like more. And in return for your efforts of letting us know, we are going to give away not only a copy of Volume 3, Modern Huntsman, but Rob has very kindly um, given us uh, the latest Barton Precision bipod. So it's an incredible opportunity to help direct money um, to an organization that really deserves it and uh, also an opportunity to win some pretty cool gear as well. And lastly, but certainly not least, a big thank you to all our patron supporters, but especially our top-tier supporters, who include Richard Stevens, Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman from rdcontracting.co.uk, James Marchington, Chris Griffith, John Henry Pete, Tom McCraith, and the team at South Ayrshire Stalking. If you would like to support the podcast so that we can keep doing what we're doing, then please head over to Patreon and look for the Pace Brothers Into the Wilderness podcast. And there's a whole heap of uh, tiers. In fact, Daryl, as he mentioned two weeks ago, even included some new ones which are um, just at $1. So for $1, you can help support the podcast in every single tier you will get something. And in fact, the new podcast stickers for your car arrived yesterday, so I should be able to send those out to all the people who are waiting um, on our, our Patreon supporter list. 
I won't keep you any longer. I do hope that you enjoy this interview with Mariska. If you want to find out a little bit more about her um, or Wildlife Vets Namibia, who she works for, uh, and Ulf, the owner, then just look up Wildlife Vets Namibia on Google. There's also a whole heap of newsletters that the team there um, put together with incredible information uh, about uh, wildlife in Africa, um, everything from sort of hoof trimming to feed supplements and info on different species like hyenas. Uh, and the, I think the second most recent newsletter that was out uh, is also some information on the relocation. Not the one that we're talking about here, but the, uh, the first relocation of the elephants up to the DRC. So you can read a little bit uh, and see some of the pictures there. Mariska, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. We are sitting in a hotel in the DRC the Democratic Republic of Congo. And quite honestly, I never thought I'd record a podcast here. It's not the kind of place that people think you can really go, but here we are, we're sat here, we've been here for a week now, and this isn't even your first time. No, I've been here a couple of times now, and also never imagined that it would ever end up in the Congo one day. I know, what it's quite a place. It's um, Some of it I was kind of expecting, like the city uh, in Kinshasa, where we are, because uh, Alex, um, who was on the podcast that's just been out from when we're recording this, he had been here before a year ago and he showed me videos of the city. I was like, okay, it kind of feels like New Delhi to me from when I when I did some work in India. Uh, but it's still different again. And the, country, the countryside, like the actual bush, especially going up the Congo River, which we did, which we'll tell people about, it was just mind-blowing. Yeah. No, it's an amazing country. It's a country of contrast. They've got such beautiful nature and then you've got this massive city myth with so many people in Kinshasa, mm. it's just over flooded. And it, it is uh, people on a scale that I've rarely seen. Uh, like, the, like I say, the closest is New Delhi and India. It's just bustling with people. Yeah, no, I've never seen something like this. <laughs> uh, and one of the, I think we were talking about the other day, I think around the dinner table, is that one of the things that I was trying to wrap my head around is I think is there tw- there's 22 million people here, give or take, I think, in the city. Is that the no- number? The estimation I've heard was 18 million, but nobody 18. really has a clue how many. Okay, a lot. <laughs> a uh, lot, yeah. And you know, most people here don't have very much. Uh, well, in the country as a whole, but particularly in the city, uh, as it is with a lot of cities like this. And yet all of these people have to eat every day. So yeah. the amount of food that must have to come in here... Yeah on a daily basis to feed 20-odd million people is exactly. insane. Yeah. And it's not like the infrastructure is very good. <laughs> no, the roads are not the best. <laughs> so we um, we met maybe uh, 10 days ago? Yeah. Something like that. I, I can't believe how much has happened in 10 days. Is it only 10 days? It we must started be about 25th. That. 25th of yeah. uh, July, 2019. Uh, we were at uh, Mount Etro Safari's catching elephants Correct. not everybody yeah. gets to say that <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> <laughs> and that, and that, that, but those weren't the first elephants that you'd caught so that, i want to rewind time a bit so uh the first trip which is kind of a mirror image of the the trip that you and i are doing now with with everybody else who's part of the team um when did, when did that take place well we started this project already a while ago in 2017 um, then the people from the park came to us asking for advice. We want to set up a reserve. Um, how do we go about? Um, we as wildlife vets, we advised them on that. And we started to bring first um, a bit of more of the easy game. So animals that we knew were easy to transport and would easily adapt. Um, we brought them first, see how they're doing. And they were doing fine. 
And then a year later, we brought the first rhinos. And that must have been a big operation. Yeah, yeah, we flew them. The, that was quite a quite an experience. So how many how many did you fly in one go? Um, we flew eight. Eight. Yes. Huh. Yeah. And how did that go? Went very well. Yeah. yeah so it th- was these, these are the so I was actually with yes there was filming with the rhino ranger here. So some of those rhino that are there are the ones that you brought. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So it was very quickly we um, captured them in Namibia on a game farm. Drove straight to the airport, load them, fly directly into Kinshasa, drove to the park, offload. The whole operation was not much more than 24 hours. That's a slight contrast to what we've just done. To our trip, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so so after the rhinos, the the last big step was was elephants. Mm. Um, So we did the first batch in um, May, June. We brought a, a group of elephants and yeah, and we, uh, we, we did the second trip together. Uh, no, I, and we're going to get into that because I'm sure everyone are like, what? Yeah. You're moving elephants? Yes, we are. <laughs> uh, well, they are. I'm just here taking pictures and filming. Um, but I want to paint a little bit of a picture of, of this place and, and the park. So before you started moving game there, there wasn't really anything in that park, is no. my understanding. No, no, there was nothing. They had some Asian water buffaloes grazing, um, which they used uh, and then there was some bushbuck was left, but furthermore, we actually, we actually saw one the other day. Yeah, 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 yeah. But furthermore, there was nothing. This park is only what twenty, thirty kilometers outside the city that we were just describing of twenty odd million people. So it's kind of amazing that there is a wild place that so close, close to so mm. many people. Correct. Yeah. And to think of that, two years ago there was nothing. So these guys did such an amazing job in creating a whole reserve in. Just two years. We're kind of, I'm kind of bouncing around here a little bit, but it was this painted a, a very vivid picture in my head because uh, one of our elephants actually got out. <laughs> it's now back inside the reserve, but we were up in the helicopter while you guys were trying to move that back, and from there it was incredibly obvious to see the consequences of not having a protected area exactly. because yeah. right up to the boundary fence was uh, like small holding agriculture yeah. for the. the basically the local people who live there this kind of it's not even really a village it's kind of just a strung out households exactly yeah yeah. everywhere it's kind of sprawling all the way back to the city so you can imagine what uh, that place would look like if it didn't have another purpose yeah i think it it would all just be sort of terraced agriculture of some description i don't think there'd be any bush left or it would be turned into charcoal i also think so i mean there was a clear uh, distinction between the park you have of course, there's a fence in between, but you don't even have to have a fence to see this is the park and this is the place where the people live because it's such a massive difference in landscape. Um, there's hardly trees left. There's some big trees left, but the bushes are all gone. It's all agricultural land that is used by the people. Mm, I actually took a... <coughs> I haven't looked at it yet, but I took a picture with the drone because I went back there the day after we flew over in the helicopter having seen that. I took a picture with the drone. I flew as high as I could, and uh, just to show, which, which I'll put up probably when we put out this podcast, so that people could see that sort of stark contrast. Yeah. And I've seen images like that before, where you've had protected um, concessions for whatever reason. Well, the, the picture that I'm thinking of in my head was one was a hunting concession, and the rest was just you know farming and agriculture. And you could see that vast difference between um, the, the sort of wild place where there is actual wildlife, and then this much more manicured commercial farming aspect which is not sympathetic to the land at all yeah 
you know, even in small scale like this, it's pretty devastating. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. It's and, and certainly no wildlife. No, nothing. It's funny, um, when we started two years ago, we hardly saw any birds, for example. And now there's there were some cattle egrets, but for the rest, not much. And we now see a lot of birds even coming back. So they really need this this nature place, you know, and they need the animals. Um because to drive, it, and it's because it's the sort of cycle of the ecosystem. Exactly, it's it starts slowly coming back, mm. and that's that's great to see. It is awesome. See, I was actually saying there was a whole bunch of guinea fowl on the road when I was driving and filming the other day with Gomer, and I was asking him if if you'd brought them back in or whether they were here before, and he said they were here, but uh, they basically all got eaten. Yeah. So you, they, although they were there, there were very few. And he yeah. says now they're everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's fantastic. It that's is, and also I think. Uh, he was he was saying one of the the reasons, even just sort of on the periphery of it, is a lot of um, people on the out on the sort of boundary are actually employed inside the park. Yeah, yeah. So they use the locals to to help in the park as cleaners or in the restaurant or whatever to create some goodwill. Um, so that's that's good. It shows to the people like, hey, the park is not something um, that we taken away from you. Yeah. You're still part I'm of it. Keeping you out. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I like that. And I think that is, from my understanding, I think that's that's kind of the purpose of it. Yeah. Is to, to show. And the, the other thing I liked about my discussions, especially with Gomez in the last couple of days, um, has been this idea of uh, educating the local people in terms of what wildlife is yeah. and how it has a value. Yeah. Because as you saw the first time you came here with the elephants, they hadn't seen an elephant before. No. Because... Although the habitat here, from what I've seen, and uh, also sp speaking to the guys from the ICCN about other the big parks like way in the interior, is the habitat still there. Mm. It's just that there's no wildlife anymore yeah. because it's all being poached either for ivory or rhino horns or for for the other stuff for food. Meat, yeah. For meat, yeah. So it's kind of cool to have this realization that it has a value beyond eating it. Yeah. No. Exactly. And. The park is doing well visitor-wise, so there's a lot of visitors coming. What also is very cool is that they have uh, school projects, so they take in school classes that come and see and actually see a zebra with their own eyes. They've never seen it, of course, and that's where you need to start if you can enthusiasm the youth by saying, look, this is beautiful, we must preserve this. Maybe one day they will become the conservationists of the DRC. Yeah, um, and that's what you need. And that's what you need, yeah. Mm. Especially in this country with such a massive population in Kinshasa, um, you need people that still care about nature and that want to preserve all those national parks because Congo is such a special country. They've got okapis, bonobos, bongos, gorillas. I mean, all in one country. It's it's insane. Once I started to appreciate and have conversations with people on the ground here as to what is actually here and even what's not here anymore mm. because that tells you what could still be here. Yeah. Uh, if... Uh, if we if they manage to um, protect and bring it back, yeah. wow, it was blowing me away. There was this. Uh, I met this the the guy um, Rob Muir a couple of days ago, and he was talking about these two parks that they're trying to set up. He called them the lost parks um, because they don't have sort of a security system around them to prevent any illegal poaching within them. Um, and as a result, there's basically nothing left. But in these two parks, he was saying that they used to support a hundred thousand elephants. Yeah. Which is a mind, I mean, yeah. that's, they say the population of Botswana is between 120 and 170,000 elephants, 
which is too many for that country. But here's one part of the DRC. I mean, it's in terms of proportions, it's small. It's a massive area. I don't. I can't remember how big he said it was. Um, but if you were to look at it on the map, you'd be like, oh, that's tiny. But the DRC is colossal, second biggest country in Africa. And that area could support 100,000 elephants. Yeah. yeah, you can't get there with your mind. I mean, the, the the vegetation is so abundant here. And so you can have a lot more animals in a smaller area. Mm, especially when uh, when you come from somewhere like Namibia, where, exactly. well, where you work and live now, yeah. and where I've just spent a lot of time, those numbers don't compute Mm-mm. because of the, the habitat and because of the drought. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely this. I mean, the DRC's got water and food everywhere. So if you compare it to Namibia, yes, Namibia is a very harsh country for animals. Hmm. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to press pause on, on this story because I'm gonna, I, wa- I want to leave this now for the end of our, our conversation. We're going to pick this back up because I want to find out a bit more about your background leading up to elephant relocations to the DRC and then we can tell people <laughs> about the boat trip and stuff. So you are, you are not from Namibia. As no. people can probably tell from your accent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, how how did you end up in Africa? So um, what is your what is your what is your story, Mariska? <laughs> I am from Holland, um, and I always had this thing for Africa. I don't really know why. I guess it's from from my zoo background. I always wanted to see. I worked in a zoo, and I always wanted to see my my animals that I took care of in the zoo. I wanted to see them in the wild, and. I decided to study wildlife management and then through my university I ended up in Namibia to work in a cheetah project and then it was a bit back and forth coming to Holland and Namibia and eventually during my master's in forest and nature conservation I ended up um, in a farm that works with rhinos and then my boss uh, Ulf Tubesing he came to dehorn the rhinos and your boss now yeah my boss now and um, it was just Good timing, good place. Um, and his assistant just resigned and I was almost finished. So, um, yeah, I ended up with him and I learned everything in practice. I have no veterinary background. Um, so I learned everything in practice and, yeah, that's now two and a half years ago. That's crazy. It just shows you, though, if you have um, if you have a, a real desire and a will to yeah. pursue something, even if it feels like it's half a well, it literally was half a world away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can make it happen. I yeah. mean, it can't have been easy, though. I mean, to to find those opportunities... A lot of people think that those opportunities don't exist or those are opportunities for other people. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I, I can't imagine it was easy for you to, to work that out. No, no, no. And also to end up in Namibia all the time. I mean, um, I'm not from a rich family that supports all my tickets. So it was, for me, it was... I worked the whole year to pay for my ticket and... Like friends thought it was weird, you know. Um, why don't you go out and have holidays and have fun? It's like, no, I want to go to Africa. I want to live. Exactly. Yeah. And um, I think if you really want something, you must go for it. It was very scary. I didn't know my boss back then. And you just go and sit in with him in the car for six hours because you need to drive in Namibia <laughs> to a game farm, you know. How, how will that just be? Da- which is just down the road. Exactly. In, in Namibia, yeah. Six hours is not that far. Right. <laughs> um so yeah, no, that was pretty scary. Also, my family wasn't too happy about it, of course. What about you? But leaving to this unknown place? Exactly. Yeah. You don't know what it is. It. Yeah, yeah. Mm. You don't really know what the job yeah. is and how it will be, and there's a lot of unknown things. Did you did you have any reservations or doubts when the opportunity came up, though? Because that's 
it's not the kind of thing most people can decide on the moment. Yeah, no, actually, my first reaction to when he asked me is was no. Um, I just got a fixed position in the zoo um, to work with but giant pandas in Holland. In, in Holland yeah. yeah, so it was quite an honor. Um, we were supposed to go to China to train there, and um, so my first reaction when he asked me says no. If when I go back to Holland, I'm I'm going to work with the pan pandas, and then a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine, she says when I told her the story, she says. Are you out of your mind? You're going to pick up that phone right now and you tell him you take the job. Um, this is an opportunity you never get again. And I was yeah. like, yeah, but this, that. And she says, pick up that phone and call him. You take the job. And, and you did so it. So I did. And you don't regret it. <laughs> and never. No, no, really. I mean, the, th the thing is with things like that is that, you know, even if it is short-lived, you know, even if it's 12 months. Yeah. You can't pay for those experiences. No, never. Because you can't, there is no, uh, you know, th there's no opportunity to do it and, and live it. You can't pay for the experience yeah. to do it. Yeah. Uh, you know, there, there, you can sample stuff like that. I know that there, there are um, opportunities for people to go and spend two weeks or four weeks working with, you know, different organizations around the world. But that's, you know, it's kind of insulated that. But yeah. when you're living, breathing it, Yeah. It's blood, it's sweat, it's yeah. the tears of it, day in, day out. I mean, no one can ever take that away from you. No, no, never. And it's I'm very grateful for this job. I mean, it's one in a lifetime. Um, I get to work very close by with giraffes, rhinos, all sorts of antelopes, now elephants. Um, I get to see Angola. I get to see everything from Namibia. I get to go to Congo. Mm. That's pretty amazing. Who gets to go to Congo? Exactly. <laughs> so what is your kind of day-to-day uh, um, -day, uh, you know, so when, when you're working with Ulf? In Namibia, we basically work mostly on game farms. So then it is um, sort of the management of the, of the herds. So you will take the young bulls, uh, young antelope bulls out of the herd, bring it to another camp. We move animals from farm to farm. If they have too many on one place and the next door farm wants them so some of this is darting animals. some yeah. of it's um mass game capture yeah we don't do mass capture ourselves anymore um so mainly for us it's darting so you dart an animal immobilize it you treat it vaccinate it or whatever and then you either shift it or whatever is needed you know if an animal is wounded we will come and treat it so it's quite diverse hmm. a lot of, i think a lot of people don't realize Uh, then even in these vast areas, which they maybe perceive as like wild and untouched and no hand of man, yeah. there's a lot of movement of game in Southern Africa. Yeah, yeah. Through, through necessity. Yeah. No, if you put a fence around something, then you must manage. Um, and especially the game farming. So that's basically intended for either breeding game, either ecotourism or the hunting industry. Um, so most farms are around 10,000 hectares, or some a bit smaller, some a bit bigger, and they manage their populations. Um, and you need a vet sometimes for that. If you want to move animals, you can't just grab them. No. You, you need to immobilize them and take them away, or you do it through mass capture. So you, you chase a whole herd um, sort of in a boma, and via that boma they will enter in a truck and you move them. I've seen that. I, well, I've I did it many many years ago, but I've done a lot of it <laughs> in the last few weeks, and uh, it's, it was actually the first time. Although I, I did a lot of it a while ago, it was the first time that I'd actually been in the helicopter while doing it with Alex. Yeah. Well, now that's a cool experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
You need a fairly strong stomach for it. Yeah. Because <laughs> those guys, what skill those guys have that do that with yeah. a helicopter. No, that's amazing. It's very dangerous flying. Mm. I mean, they fly in the zones with every chopper teacher tells you not to fly in. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh, quite something. And and also, there's also it's not just... It's not just about flying a helicopter skillfully. It's also about reading the animals. Yeah. And that was That's something that I was I really got to understand to a different level to what I understood before, sitting beside Alex, you know, him talking to me and telling me what he's doing yeah. you know, while we were flying the zebra. And for this trip, actually, yeah. the, the zebra that we took here. Yeah. Um, it's not quite what people think. No. It's, it's about reading it's and positioning. It's not just chasing an animal no, chasing. somewhere. No, and it's every species is different. Some you need to... Uh, press maybe a bit harder. Some you really must take very slowly. Um, it's really you must understand the species. So it's it's a difficult job. Yeah. What um, it's something I, I touched on uh, when I did the podcast with Alex in terms of the situation in Namibia with lack of rain and drought. But that's something that you must have seen, you know, really quite vividly and firsthand, working amongst so many different farms and the yeah. impact of that. Yeah. I, I'm guessing it's difficult for everybody in Namibia right yeah. now. No, it's very difficult. I mean, we come to game farms where um, this year was no rain. Last year was hardly any rain. There's just sand. There's nothing else. Even the bushes are already eaten up, uh, eaten. It's it's horrible. You see these skinny animals and the farmers try to feed them. But how do you feed animals on 10,000 hectares? Um, the lucerne and the grass, they made it so expensive now in South Africa. Um, it's it's crazy. It's the amount that farmers need to pay to try to keep their animals alive. Mm. And some of them try to sell their animals, but at the moment, the whole Namibia is in drought, so nobody wants to buy animals. So, so there's what no do market? You do? No, 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 no. So where are the animals going? Because I know that everyone's trying to reduce their carrying capacities yeah. of, the, of their farms, yeah. because there is only two choices. You either remove animals and send them somewhere else, yeah. or you eat them. Exactly. Yeah, you you have to cull. Yeah. I mean, you have to cull, cull to save that little bit of grass that you still have to at least keep your nucleus population going. Um, so, but that's very hard. You can see all the farmers; they don't even enjoy it anymore to drive in the field because all you see is thin animals, and you wonder, do I still have enough money to buy some grass? Is there even grass available? Because that's also another problem. Of course, there, so much grass needs to be imported from South Africa, but South Africa also didn't have two good rains. No, they haven't. Yeah. Um, so it's it's very scary. We all very much hope for a early and good rain, rainy season because otherwise the country will be in big big trouble. Yeah, it's kind of hard to contemplate what uh, you know, what might happen. We're in. We're, when does the rain or when should the rain come? It's end of this year. Yeah. What, November, November or late November onwards. Yeah. Then mm. this the um, the small rainy season starts and then January, February, March, the, the big raining season should start. But the last years, we didn't really have that anymore. So it's it, the rains come a bit later and not as long anymore. And some rains come very late, April, May. It's, it's really unpredictable. Uh, beyond moving a uh, game from, from A to B for various reasons, uh, you're also vaccinating... Most people in Europe don't think of vaccinating wild animals yeah. because wild animals are just wild animals. They just do their thing and they're fine doing their yeah. thing. But that's pretty widespread in Southern Africa, yeah. vaccinations. What what for and, and why? Why do they need to do it? Yeah, these animals have a value for the farmer, either because they 
um, get tourism uh, business from it or hunters come in. So you want to protect these animals. You want to make sure that they're okay. So one of the things we um, often vaccinate against is rabies. Rabies is very prevalent in Namibia and especially the Kudu and Eland populations are very susceptible. Um, so when we have a rabies outbreak, you, the Kudu population just goes down like a rocket. So we've seen on the farms where we've been vaccinating, um, the Kudu populations remain very stable. So it really works. Because it's devastating for Kudu. I've yeah. seen it firsthand yeah. uh, about five years ago, yeah. and it was just it can wipe ca- out complete carcasses everywhere. Yeah. yeah, you know these massive bulls. Yeah. Uh, the bulls are the ones I, I saw. I didn't see any dead cows, yeah. but I mean it affects both, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, no, both. It's the bulls are m- used most of the time more obvious because their horns just sticking out a little bit more, notice, and that's what you see, right? Yeah. Rather than a carcass sort yeah, of hiding, yeah, so you yeah. see it above the grass if. There is any grass. There yeah. was grass when I, um, when uh, the place that I was at a few years ago. Yeah. But I was amazed just how devastating yeah. it was. Another thing is anthrax, um, especially the rhinos are very susceptible, and well, a rhinos is a very valuable animal, not in terms just of money, but also because there's not that many left. Um, yeah, yeah, like so globally we vaccin- v- exactly. valuable. Huh? Yeah, so we vaccinate against anthrax. How do they get it? Um, anthrax is in the ground. So they will. It's these spores that can remain in the ground for a very long time. The animal gets it in, and so they breathe it in or eat it in while they're yeah, grazing. They, um, there are v- different types of getting it, but it's they can breathe it. Um, some say they can also by insects. It can be transmitted. Um, but yeah, now it has a devastating effect as well. I think last year or two years ago, um, we had an anthrax outbreak among the buffalo and the hippo in the Caprivi. Jeez. And it killed a lot of animals. What um, do you know? What the like the symptoms are for anthrax? It's not something I've just ever seen. Just sudden death. Yeah. Just keel over yeah. die. Yeah. So you out visually outside on the exterior, you, you can't don't see, see much. No. Huh. no. And it's also difficult to um, to figure out what it is because um, if we come, if a farmer calls us, it's like, hey, we've got a dead rhino, um, and we see it gets. Um, it's it's a sudden death. Mm-hmm. Um, it might have bleedings from the nose and from all the openings. Then you're already suspicious for anthrax, but we can't open it because anthrax we can get as well. Yeah. So if you would open it and you would get the spores in, you might get anthrax yourself. Um, so we will take samples of the of the ground, and that's basically the only thing around the carcass. Yeah. Um, that we can test to to see whether the animal has died of anthrax. It's, it's amazing to think there can be the sort of mass die-off like that yeah. and it's just hiding in the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah Namibia is quite, um, how do you say it, uh, quite high prevalence of anthrax. Really? Yeah. Huh, I didn't realize it was quite such a big problem. Mm. Yeah. But, you're able but the to vaccines are working very well. They do. We do with elephants, rhinos. You can vaccinate a lot of animals with it, but it's a quite expensive vaccine. So usually the people only use it for... The expensive animals. Exactly, like the rhinos. Yeah, it's, you know, when you talk about it like that, it just shows you that someone has to pay for it. Yeah. So if the game doesn't have a value that that revenue can be generated by, then how do you fund that? And if you don't fund vaccination for rhinos for something like anthrax, an area which has high prevalence, yeah. you run a very real risk of losing a lot of animals. Yeah, no, definitely. No, and the farmer needs to get something out of his wildlife. You see, um, the game prices a couple of years ago were very high. So if you would have a sable antelope and you would get calves, you could sell the offspring for a nice price. 
Um, at the moment, the prices are very low um, just because there was sort of this bubble. So the prices went up and up and up and up to an unrealistic level. People would pay a couple of million for a sable bull, which was not a realistic price. But this is this is, for for the international. This is a couple of million rand. Yeah, which is it's about seventeen rand to one sterling, or tw- I think maybe twenty to the dollar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, and then people started to pull out of this market, and the whole market crashed. Um, so the game prices are not how it used to be, and a lot of farmers invested heavily in getting good genetics, and they now sit with animals that are worth not that much anymore so you actually but they hear paid a lot for them they paid a lot for yeah. them yeah so you hear people now saying especially with the drought um saying well i don't know what to do with my wildlife it doesn't bring anything in maybe the best option is to get rid of all the wildlife go back to cattle farming and that's a that's a for nature that's not a good option of course i mean but that's the reality of it and i think it's a reality that a lot of people don't understand is that land will be used eventually. It will be used for something that revenue can be generated from. There's n- there's no way around that unless it's unless it's uh, cordoned off as a national park, yeah. of which there are plenty, but it's a fairly small area in yeah. comparison to everything else. Uh, money will be generated somehow. Yeah. And if it's not viable anymore to generate it via wildlife, which exactly. is what we all want to see, yeah. it will be something else. Yeah. And like you say, it'll be cattle. Farms. Yeah. Yeah. They will get rid of the the wildlife because they will compete with the cattle. Hmm. And there's already not much grass, so the little grass there is, you want to keep for your cattle then, so you yeah. will probably uh, cull out the rest. Uh, yeah, well, that's what I, I was, this is what I was wanting you to describe, because I've talked about this before, so people have heard me explain the consequences of turning something into more intensive agriculture. So I, I, that's why I wanted if explain how an area would be converted and what would be left. If you took a place like, for example, where we were, Mount Etchu, yeah. which is not going to be turned into cattle farm. In fact, they've mm-hmm. over the years they've bought cattle farms and turned it back into, you know, wild areas. But if that place tomorrow was turned into a cattle farm, what would be the consequences of that? Yeah, there's all the wildlife that would have been there um, would be gone. It would slowly be culled, probably, um, because I mean the wildlife will compete with with your cattle, and you want optimal production, of course. Um, so yeah, and that would be such a waste. It's such a big area. No, no, and but you need big areas. Yeah, yeah, in Namibia, especially because yeah, yeah, because you need um, yeah, grass is always an issue, even even after good rains. You know, Namibia is not such a lush country like the DRC, where you almost see the grass growing every day. <laughs> it almost feels like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Namibia is such a harsh country, so you need big areas to have enough food for your animals. And I think the other thing that uh, is sometimes, like visually, you maybe can't see it unless you're somebody who knows the country or and you spend a lot of time on the on the ground, so you understand uh, the balance on the other animals, like the lesser lesser known, the less visual animals. Is as soon as you break that um, that cycle and that ecosystem, there's a lot of other things that suffer, yeah. which you can't see. Yeah. You know, the bugs and the the rodents and the uh, the birds. Yeah. You know, there's not that many birds on a cattle farm. No, there's some no. b- birds that do yeah. very well, like generalist species, but your more specialists, yeah. they don't have a home anymore. Yeah. yeah, I think the project in the DRC is a good example. It's like we don't see any um, dung beetles, for example, 
I'm sure there must have been dung beetles here. Mm. Do you know, I actually, I, I actually saw one. Did you? Yesterday. Uh, really? I saw one for the first time. Wow. But you're right. Like in, There are some places where they're everywhere. Yeah. Wherever there's dung, you see dung beetles. Exactly. I remember a place in Kimberley I was at years ago. And yeah. I'd never seen so many dung beetles. Yeah. This is in South Africa. Um, but when we were walking, trying to find the um, the young elephants that we dropped off yesterday, um, we were hot on the heels of like 30 buffalo. And there were dung beetles rolling buffalo that's, shit. That's good. That's yeah. good news. Yeah. But, you, but you're right, though. You make a good point. Because you, if there isn't the dung from these big animals, yeah. like your buffalo and your elephant and everything, of yeah. course there's not going to be any dung beetles. Yeah, exactly. And then certain types of birds won't be there. And it's everything is so connected. And I don't think us people still understand half of it, how everything is connected. So it's if you can preserve an area as a nature area you know with a sort of intact ecosystem that's amazing we should grab those chances and there's a way to to fund that and harness it so that it's sustainable in the long term yeah. then you know i think that's the challenge as i've heard now um having conversations here about uh, these parks way in the interior is the sad reality is as much as people want to protect them is that they generate no revenue yeah you so can't they, keep up by just no, keep can't. on funding it, it well, it's must, just donations yeah um, the conversation which I was telling you yourself and Annette the other day I did an interview with the um, a gent from the ICCN here which is like their nature conservation equivalent in the DRC uh, and he was saying that they get every year 130 million US um, which is essentially get a gift of money for the parks 130 million dollars um, and it's not enough. And that's that's 95% of all their funding comes that way. So 5% is generated via uh, taxes and revenues for the government here. But that's coming from the EU and the WWF and uh, there's some stuff coming from the US and the World Bank. But I don't know how sustainable that is in the yeah. long term. So what happens if one of those partners Stops. tomorrow, for whatever other reason, maybe you have a, um, an economic crisis and a crash in Europe, as we've just had in from 2008 to 2012 mm. and that dries up overnight yeah you sudden you're suddenly can't pay your rangers anymore yeah i mean that's pretty devastating all that work could just disappear exactly yeah so I don't know, it's, it's one of those great challenges yeah. how do you fund those big spaces yeah. and i think namibia in in that view does it well well because they've got many private game reserves and you see that they do well also wildlife numbers they all go up um, but it's privately managed by either for tourism or for hunting. Um, and there you see the numbers going up. The national parks are struggling much more. Um, and that's why it's so important to... Um, maybe people don't always have a good concept by a game farm, but these game farms are the reason that Namibia still have so much wildlife left. Yeah, no, that's very true. And you look at places like uh, like Mantecha, where we are, and their neighbors, Arindi, yeah. which is even bigger yeah and you know there is uh, there is not the amount of wildlife in those two places as there was five years ago but that's because of the droughts so both of them have had um, well i don't know arindi as well but i would guess they probably have had to take um game off otherwise how would they feed them all but still there's still an abundance of wildlife yeah. there's yeah, yeah. you still see it everywhere yeah and yet i was in um a conservancy that is managed on very different principles not that long ago and there really wasn't that much there yeah um, harsher terrain, to be fair, um, but it's 
it's a discussion that a lot of uh, our American listeners and when I've been writing, maybe sometimes struggle to wrap their head around because they're very much all about public lands and access to public lands. And that is sort of like the pinnacle of having these vast areas which are publicly owned by the government as being the best option. Um, but there are there is a place for private ownership and they've proven to be very successful in a lot of other parts of the world. Um, so going back to uh, where we are right now, let's talk about the day, what it's like to go and catch elephants, because just the, the concept, and we're going to go and catch some elephants, seems <laughs> a little insane, actually. You know, yeah. it's, not like, it's not like herding a flock of sheep. Yeah, no, exactly. It's a huge, it's, huge operation. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of people involved. A lot day. of different companies, organizations, people, and they all must melt together on that one day. Mm. It's a lot of preparation, yeah. Mm. What was your sort of pre-preparation like? Because you guys must have... It's not like you just arrived that day and you were ready to rumble. Yeah, no. Um, It was actually, for me, it was only my second elephant job. Um, So it was still still a bit new and um, what will happen. So we are basically the veterinary team. So our job is to look after the animals. My boss um, immobilizes the animals. I make sure the animals on the ground are okay. uh, I monitor them, breathing... Uh, vaccinate them, um, give them vitamin injections and everything, make sure that they're okay. This is to set them up for their relocation, yeah, so yeah, you don't yeah, have to do it later. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and then we've got a whole team with us. Um, the Irindi team uh, helped us during the capture. We also used their elephant crates. Because they've moved a lot of, of elephants yeah, in the yeah, past, yeah. right? No, they are the best. They really do a good job. Um, so basically my boss is in the helicopter and he goes out with Alex um to, to locate a herd of elephants and they will decide, okay, um, this is a nice group because we want to take family groups. So in the past, what a lot of people did is they take only small elephants because it's easier to translocate. But if you only take the small elephants without a mature ele- elephant that can tell the, the young ones, hey, don't do this. Um, it's like naughty teenagers. Exactly. Yeah. And they become naughty. They yeah. will break fences. They will go after people, after cars. So you need older elephants and that was the biggest challenge that we had. Um, we want to translocate a, a family group. So from the big matriarch to their offspring. Um, so that was quite a challenge. So the people from Mount Etchu identified certain groups. Okay, this is a nice group that belongs together. And that's the group that we take. So and that was quite a, that was quite a process because I was there in the weeks before. And it was a lot of conversations. Mm. Like, you know, every few days... I'd be out with, with Annette and we'd be looking at the elephants and she'd be, you know, seeing how they're interacting. She, she'd known them their whole lives pretty much. Um, but it's not just, oh, yeah, that one, that one, that one will yeah. do. It, it's, it's weeks and probably, you know, she would have been thinking about this for the last 12 months yeah, yeah, yeah. about how are you going to build um, a family structure here in the yeah. DRC from their population yeah. there that is going to work. Yeah. It's not an easy task. No, and no, you no. Know, need to know the animals. Yeah. No, definitely. And you also, you want to put animals together that sort of like each other because the trip is about five, six days. So um, you need to have elephants that get along with each other. So it's the Mount Etchu team did a great job in identifying which animals are happy together. And that's the animals we take. So, yeah, my boss is in a helicopter. He immobilizes the elephants. Then um, myself and the Irini team come in and we make sure the elephants are okay. And they get straps around their legs. And then um, they are lifted up with a crane onto a flatbed truck. And when we have a couple of elephants, then we drive 
to the big elephant crates. And that's where we wake them up inside the crate one by one. And yeah, it's quite an amazing sight. It's, it's on a scale that's really hard to picture yeah. unless you've stood there. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, an elephant. An elephant looks like a colossal animal when it's standing up. But when you're standing beside it and it's lying down, yeah. and you, you you're standing beside its leg and you see how big its foot is, like yeah. compared to your calf, yeah. you realize, especially like the like the big female, yeah. you realize just you know it's on a different it's scale. Massive animals, yeah. And it's because they're so big physically and also weigh so much. All the machinery is you yeah. Know, Everything needs to be in, in, in perfect condition, and yeah, yeah, you, and you, you need be, people to know what they're doing. You really do because you can't manhandle it; mm -mm. it needs to function. Yeah. yeah, 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 and it goes actually quite quick. Um, I was amazed was how quick it was. In the morning, we were done. It was like four hours. Yeah, yeah. I needed more time to film everything <laughs> yeah. because everything was going on at the same time. Because yeah. there was one time where I think there was three elephants kind of being moved that were time. down at the same yeah. time that were being moved, all going to the trailers, all to be woken up. Yeah. Um, so it was really, you know, slick and quick, yeah, which is yeah. how it needs to be, I guess. Exactly. Um, you don't want to have the animals down for too long, um, especially when it gets hotter during the day. So you want to work during the cool mornings. And as like with people, an anesthetic is always risky. So the shorter you have the animal under under the drugs, under the immobilizing drugs, um, the better. You want to wake up as quickly as possible. Mm, yeah. And then from there, uh, road trip yeah. to the coast. We drove to Walvis Bay, yeah. and that's where the ship was waiting for us. Can just just pause for a moment and think about this if you're listening. <laughs> by road, and then elephants by ship. Yeah. Up the coast of Africa, up the Angolan coast. Yeah. For uh, four days on the sea. Yeah. I think. And then about a day on the Congo River. Yeah. And the four days on the sea, it's not like. Yeah, you just chuck them a bit of food and they'll be fine. Mm. I mean, you guys are monitoring them all the time. Yeah. but it's And I should say, what we haven't mentioned is there was also 50 zebra and a hippo on yeah, the ship yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We haven't even talked about that. But the day before we caught 48 zebra, I think yeah. it was, uh, and a hippo, and all of them were going, it was like Noah's Ark. Yeah. No, the, the ship was full of animals, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, quite amazing. The reason why we use the ship, by the way, is um, the plane is just too small. The elephant crates don't fit. Also, the Namibian elephants are quite bigger than, for example, the Kruger elephants. So they simply don't fit in the plane, even in the big Antonov. The crates don't fit. So flying would have been the preferred option, but not possible. And roads would just take too long, especially the roads throughout Angola. And even how you would get into Kinshasa by road, that's not practical. Yeah. It's so, the logistics this side are yeah, complicated. Yeah. So the ship we've seen with the um, game we brought before is actually quite a relaxing um, trip for the animals. It's not like with the car that they pull up and brake and turn around. The ship is constant, a constant speed. So constant the sound. Yeah, the animals actually take the sea trip quite well. Yeah, they like after the first day, everything pretty much you know calmed down. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was fairly like peaceful i'd yeah, say yeah yeah the weather was very much in our favor man we nice, were lucky nice i mean obviously weather. i never saw what it was like on the first yeah, trip but you said it was a lot hotter yeah especially if you go across middle angola then you can feel the humidity is is getting higher and it's getting warmer but this trip was perfect it's very nice and then uh we arrive in matadi yeah matadi um, is the harbor in in congo yeah 
I mean, the, I'm going to backtrack a second because the the sea was cool, but I've spent a lot of time at sea on oil rigs and stuff. We got to see dolphins. You and I yeah, saw dolphins, yeah, yeah. I think, second morning, which yeah. was insane. Yeah. A lot of dolphins. Um, you got some pictures. I managed to get some film. Shitloads of flying fish. Yeah. Which is the first time I'd seen flying fish. I desperately tried to get images of them, and they're so difficult to take a picture of. I got a couple. I haven't looked at them yet, which I think worked out. Um, but entering, we entered the Congo River in the dark. And so as the light was lifting, we could see land again. For I And mean, we'd kind of seen land on the way, but I mean, it was like way, way, way on the horizon. But now we could see like bright green, it kind of just looked like jungle. Yeah. And then little fishing boats, little yeah. Makoros everywhere. Yeah. I, I would like to do that bit of the trip again. Yeah. I want to go up the Congo River again because it was too short for me. Yeah. After spending four days at sea, like suddenly there's lots of stuff to look at. And it's only like six hours or yeah, yeah, it goes so. And the last day is actually quite busy for us because um, you're cleaning. Yeah, we have four elephant crates on the ship, and we open the interconnecting door so the elephants can actually move around through the crates and be together so that they've got more space. It's of course it's quite a long trip for them, Um, and we don't want to individually crate them because it would cause a lot of stress. If they're together, that gives them more comfort. But on, uh, we can only take two crates on the road transport. So on the last day, we have to separate the groups that we have a couple of elephants in one crate and a couple of elephants in the other. Um, and cleaning, of course, they produce quite a lot of manure, of course. <laughs> They're big animals. Uh, so yeah, our last day is usually pretty busy. So we don't have a lot of time for for sightseeing. sightseeing. I think um, I, I did the most sightseeing because uh, I was taking pictures and filming. But yeah... Pretty cool. Yeah. And it's so big. I've never seen a freshwater body yeah. flowing like that before. I mean, I believe it's 10 kilometers wide at the mouth. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. It's Yeah. You can only just like see the outside. And I was speaking to Gomez. He's like second in charge of the park uh, that we've been referencing. And I was with him yesterday and he was saying that he flew over the mouth of the river um, a couple of years ago. And the river's like chocolate brown from all the sediment that's in it. And he said that that, there's so much water and the flow is so strong. I think he said it flows 10 k's out to sea before it turns. So if you're from the air, you just see this uh, brown channel pushing out into this perfectly blue sea. And then eventually it gets hit by the current going up or down the coast. Mm. And then it just like slowly turns and dissipates. I mean, that must be insane to see. Yeah. Yeah, apparently there's a near banana somewhere. There's a plane that you can take. Ah. You can go up and have a look. A okay, little, a little it'll be interesting. Or something. Yeah. yeah, I think that might have to be on the list for the future because it sounded yeah. the way you described it. It sounded incredible. Mm. Uh, and from there, you know, you, we're, you're in the DRC at that point, and you got to start driving, and it's probably one of the most insane driving experiences of my life. Yeah, yeah, that's quite a thing. It's very stressful. The whole trip is stressful because I mean, it's such big animals, and they've got such personalities. It's amazing what a bond you get with these animals Um, because you feed them um, you make sure they're okay you try I mean it's a very hard trip for the animals but we really try to make it as good as possible of course it's 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 not a nice experience for them but we try to work with them um, try to get them used to our voice feed them as much as possible give them water so you have you're so intensely busy with those animals and then that last stretch um, is the hardest. That's the road trip. It's a long trip, about 15 hours. I think we did it a bit shorter this time. Mm. And it's not that far. Yeah. I, I don't actually know what the distance was, but... I think it's 300 something. Is it? Yeah. 
So anyone, anyone trying to do that math is going to realize that that's not that far for the amount of time. But although the traffic was okay kind of at the start, you have to contend with this monster city that we described at the yeah. very start of this yeah. podcast. Yeah, yeah, and the road leads to all sort of small villages. Um, you can see there's a lot of settlement going on along the road. And of course, it gets more and more. This sort of the, sit the little villages expand, expand along the road. Um, so yeah, eventually you reach Kinshasa um, in the middle of the day, which is not ideal, but um, and the we last can't thing really you avoid do is be stationary. it. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, because I mean the temperatures are rising, um, and as long as the elephants are driving, they're sort of okay with focusing on the driving. So entering Kinshasa, then your your heart starts racing a bit. Um, luckily, the park has got. Um, a massive police force that they can hire, so they help us getting through the traffic. Mm. Um, so but it's still an absolute mission. Yeah, yeah. yeah because there's not, there's not a lot of... Um, let's just put it this way. That no one really follows the rules of the road yeah. here. <laughs> uh, so it's... Yeah, it's, it's kind of... Um, it's chaos with a purpose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it takes a long time to get through the city, yeah. and it's very noisy. Yeah. And yeah, if we stressful. drive from the hotel here to the park, it sometimes can take two, three hours. Um, yeah, it's like 30 just, kilometers away. Yeah, you, you're stuck just all the time. Mm. And now you're driving with these massive elephant crates through this city, which is packed with cars, with people, with motorcycles. So the, the police, um, they drive up front and they try to sort of clear the road. And we try to drive in convoy to get through as quickly as possible. And I must say, the police is doing an excellent job. because I don't know how they do it. Yeah, me neither. That's, um, but they can did. you imagine ge getting rid of 20 million people that are on the road, you know? Um, it was like parting the Red Sea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> for us as we, were, as we were driving through. Yeah. But yeah, we. I mean, if, for all the, the stress of it, we did make it through in, in what was not terrible time. Mm -mm, no, it was um, And by the time quick. we time we got to the park I think we were in the last hour of light yeah 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 when we got to the park we offloaded the elephants in a special boma um, we don't want to just release them just like that we want to just have them for a day relax a bit so in the boma there's lots of food there's two water holes it's about one hectare um, just that we can keep an eye on them are they okay um, and after that day we open the gates and then they can just move out on their own and Explore their new home of 20,000 hectares, full of food and water. And <laughs> uh, yeah, for them, it must be kind of mind-blowing, having come from Namibia, shock. Yeah. where everything is dusty as hell yeah. and uh, nothing's really green. No, nothing. I don't think they will have ever, well, uh, some of the older animals might have, but um, the younger animals, I don't think ever in their life had probably seen so much green. No, no that must have been such a shock for them, you... You wish you could crawl in their heads and to and learn what, what they thinking. think, yeah. You know, one of the things that this, um, you know, documenting this trip has, has shown me, and I, I understood this before, but now it's, you know, I understand it in a very visceral way, is that a lot of the um, sort of international arguments with regard to wildlife management here in Africa and overpopulations, especially like we, we were talking about, we mentioned very briefly Botswana at the beginning of uh, when we were talking, is you should just move the game. Mm. You know, if you've got too much of it, just move it. Yeah, where to? Well, where to? And it's not easy. Mm. It, it's it, Not only does it cost a shitload of money, um, it's massively stressful 
on the animals involved and the logistics are insane and a lot of the places that can could p- potentially have the capacity to take animals are completely inaccessible yeah and it's not without loss you know it's almost impossible to move vast numbers of game without losing it yeah without you know without loss without death and that's a, a really sad thing but it's the it's sort of a you know that's the real that's the realistic view of making those bold statements yeah just move the game yeah yeah they must come and see how we do it i mean it's it's not just moving it um there's no way and and the big issue is where too i mean the human population is increasing and increasing there's everywhere there's little little space left you know and the space is not getting bigger so a initiative like this reserve here um i mean where in the world do we still see that you know that is willing to pay a lot of money to have animals back in their park again so that the people here can enjoy animals mm. again that's amazing and you need the security as well yeah because there's no point like right now there would be no point if it was even possible and i don't think from the conversations i've had it's even logistically physically and feasibly possible to move animals to some of these parks in the center of the drc because yeah. i just think you, you can't get them there Mm-mm. there's no road infrastructure um, but even if you could tomorrow there is no point doing that no. if you don't have the security of the yeah, parks because exactly. You know, within 10 years, if it even takes that long, it'll all be gone again. It will be gone, yeah. Yeah, so you need these private initiatives um, with proper management inside the park that's that can handle it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's an epic story. And uh, that's why I was so keen to try and be part of it and document it in some way. Because just, you know, just sort of the headline notion that you take these big animals um, by boat up a river. Yeah. <laughs> Halfway up Africa, it's not something that happens every day. No, no, no. And no. Uh, for you, it must be, I mean, you're, I'm just a fly on the wall looking at what you guys are doing, but, you know, for you and the team and, and Ulf and Vickers in the logistics side and, you know, Aneta and her team to be 100% involved from the inside out must be, I mean, it'll. You'll always have that, mm. knowing that you were part of it. Yeah, that must yeah. feel pretty special. Yeah, no, it is. Especially seeing the animals now here. You know, it's every time we come back, and if it's now the elephant or the little Niala, it's amazing to see them here. Yeah, you've been part of that repopulation story. Yeah. To a place that didn't have anything before. Exactly. Yeah. So you bring them from the place where are too many, um, and now with the drought where they couldn't survive, so we give them at least a chance in the DRC. And the people here in Kinshasa get now the chance to see a zebra and a giraffe and an elephant. And and that's what needed to create enthusiasm, enthusiasm for conservation eventually. It gives you some hope for, uh, you know, for the future of wildlife yeah. to some extent. I, I think it's a very precarious future for a lot of wildlife, especially yeah. here in Africa. And, uh, you know, hopefully we can start using this carrying capacity of central africa where there's not a lot left yeah but it would be amazing if that carrying capacity of the environment which seems to be fairly intact you know could be teeming with game once again yeah yeah that would be amazing it would be so i i, I would like to talk to you for much longer but because the bloody phone rang and apparently the driver's here and now i need to go to the park <laughs> to go and film um we'll kind of wrap up here uh but i'll wrap up just by asking you sort of what's your what's your kind of 
plan for the future? What what direction, given the amazing couple of years that you've had, you know, is uh, is Africa going to hold on to you? What's your I what's your hope? So. Yeah. For the future in terms of what you want to do and what you want to be involved. I mean, you've already been involved in some things that people will never do in their lifetime. It's difficult to predict because, I mean, in Africa, you never know work-wise, visa-wise. Yeah. Um, but if the opportunity is there, I would like to stay. And I would like to be become a bit more involved in, in real conservation projects because that's that's ultimately my aim is I want to make sure that the next generations are also able to see the things that I've seen. Um, I mean, it's from being a kid, you know, Africa is such a magical place. Of course, it's not the Lion King, what a lot of people in, in, in Europe and, and the States maybe think. But still, Africa is beautiful. It's amazing to see a rhino or a lion or an elephant or a small impala. It's amazing to see them in the world. And that's what I want to keep here. So if I can play even a little part in that, then that would make me happy. Yeah. That's your. That's what makes you tick. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I'm pretty confident that we will cross paths again after we part company here in the DRC. Uh, but thank you for coming on the show. I wish we'd ha wish we had longer, um, but I'm sure this this will not be the last recount of of this story. And we m we might actually see each other once again when I drive back through Namibia, possibly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll be um, nice. In a few weeks' time. Yeah. But thanks very much, Mariska. It's been great spending time with you the last ten days, two weeks. Thank you very much for your opportunity and that you came along. It's, yeah. no, I've had it was quite a special trip. I've had a blast and I certainly won't be forgetting it anytime soon. And that's it for another two weeks. Uh, when the next podcast comes out, I'm going to be in the States. So I have no idea who I'm going to be bringing to you. Uh, but we, I do know that we're going to be recording a whole heap of podcasts with the Modern Huntsman team in Bozeman, and then probably one or two in LA afterwards as well. Uh, and then I will be home and we're going to grab some podcasts back here in the UK. But thank you very much for listening. Don't forget, if you want to support the show, to head over to Patreon. Um, leave us a review if you've enjoyed this podcast and if you enjoy listening uh, every two weeks. Pretty much every platform that you listen to should give you the ability to re to review it. Although I don't think you can on Spotify yet. We're basically available on all of the podcast platforms. Just search uh, Into the Wilderness and you will find it. And if there's a platform that you prefer to use uh, and we're not available on, let us know and we'll try and sort that out. 